All right. Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And we want to talk to you about the Bible. Specifically, we'd like to talk to you today about Genesis 15 and Genesis 16. We're thankful for you taking the time to listen to the podcast today. And we hope to share with you the Word of God in a very clear and concise way. A way that maybe you don't get to hear too often. And hopefully will be useful to you in your studies and in your growth, in seeking God's glory in your daily life. Before we get started, we want to encourage you to look at some of the resources that we have at our various websites that Bryant and I uh, at least are maintained through the congregations that we work with. Um, you can go to NorthColumbusChristians.com where this podcast is hosted and hosted through. And uh, plenty of resources there. We've got a few other podcasts going on and a blog that we update each Wednesday. We encourage you to check that out, NorthColumbusChristians.com. And we worship in the Columbus, Mississippi area. We're grateful to have you anytime. And uh, Bryant preaches in the Savannah, Georgia area. Their website, GardenCityCoc.org. encourage you to go to that website as well and interact with them if at all possible. And certainly when you're in the area, go and visit them as well. Bryant, uh, what are the what's our typical way of going through the show? Well, uh, usually what we do to kind of in the spirit of the title of our podcast, um, like to start just with a reading over the text, uh, really getting kind of a feel for um, overall, uh, get the flow of the story. So we do just a, a reading first of all, followed by just initial observations, um, just some things that kind of overall stick out to us as points of importance and uh, move on from there to maybe some themes that uh, we saw more specifically in the text. And uh, we always try to follow that up with concluding with some uh, some applications that we can bring into the text as well. Genesis 15, from the New King James Version. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, 
seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Genesis 16, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. So when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. 
You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So looking at just some basic, uh, you know, some things that really uh, catch your attention in the book. You know, this can be always useful in, in a study, in the Bible study, where we're trying to glean from the text and like pull from it really what's going on. I think this is a good place to start. Bryant, what are some uh, initial observations you have? Well, it's... Interesting, we've noted in Genesis there's a lot of separating. Uh, you know, and holiness is separation. You know, it's to be set apart. And it's interesting that uh, these animals that God called Abram um, to get besides the birds were cut in half and the halves were separated. I think that's interesting. May not be significant, but... And then Hagar... Uh, actually would be separated at one point, but not yet. And I think that's interesting, you know, that um, for now, Hagar needs to continue to be joined uh, to Abram and Sarai until the birth of Isaac. Um, so I think there's a couple interesting things with just the theme of Genesis of, of separations and um, cutting off or setting apart. Um, I think those are some interesting, interesting things in both those chapters. You know, I can't really imagine at any point uh, my wife saying, hey, you know, we're having trouble having children. Uh, here's this other woman right. that can sort of be this go-between. And, um, you know, uh, obviously this has been some form of solution uh, in people's minds in the past. And certainly it was a solution in Sarah's mind. But it's interesting where you see that, I mean, it's almost immediately she she – regrets her decision mm. and it's one of those things where uh okay well why did you do it then <laughs> and i think a lot of times you know that's that's kind of what happens when we choose to go against uh you know to go against god's plan at the time it seems great and we have maybe what is a an immediate sense of fulfillment but down the road we may recognize that that's not exactly what we wanted in the first place mm. I've always loved in chapter 15 when the sun was going down and this great horror and darkness comes upon Abram and you know, uh, I, it just, it seems it just very, it's a very atmospheric kind of passage and it's sort of like, yeah. you know, I mean, any, any Bible student knows what he's talking about 
And uh, again, I'm not, <laughs> maybe you don't know what he's talking about. That's okay. <laughs> We're not trying to, yeah. but, but, uh, you know, he refers to the fact that your descendants are going to be in a land that's not theirs. It's going to serve them. They're going to afflict them 400 years. He's talking about Israel in Egypt. Um, the family of Israel living in Egypt and, and, and living as slaves. Um, I don't think I've ever heard any other kind of exegesis from that, that symbolism there. And, uh, but it's interesting that, that this is a uh, horror and great darkness is associated with this. And, uh, and, and it's not something that necessarily is happy, but interesting in the context, again, uh, not to push too far here, but in the context of the book of Genesis, them going to Egypt is almost like the happy ending of the book. Right. It's almost like, you know, this is, this is a good thing, but here we're talking about horror and great darkness and, you know, God, God warning him or telling him about this. Um, you know, just, just some interesting things there. Yeah. I think it is interesting. Like you were saying how dramatic and theatrical it is. Um, I was studying this chapter uh, some time ago with someone and we were talking about how it's almost like, and I guess I should define this term that God was giving Abram an apocalyptic vision of something. So for instance, the revelation that was given to John, the last book of the Bible, that's apocalyptic. It's, it's, it's a vision where you have scenes and drama uh, Zechariah is another book like that. There's a lot of apocalyptic language, very dramatic, very visual. Uh, Ezekiel, the same thing. There's apocalyptic language in Ezekiel. There's also in Daniel. So anyway, I think this, this is kind of interesting because I think this is the first this is the first kind of apocalyptic uh, kind of scene, you know, because you have promises being made before, but this is very representative. There's there's animals, there's the burning torch, there's the darkness, the terror. So it's just, it's it's very uh, all-encompassing, you know. It's like it exercises all of Abram's emotions. And I think even if we struggle to understand what this all is completely conveying perfectly, I think Abram himself would have gotten enough to understand the point because of how involved he was in the center of this scene that God had set up and how God got Abram to interact with these pieces of this set, if that makes sense. It's obvious that God will use certain, certain ways to emphasize his points. Right. You know, we talk about using PowerPoint in a sermon. Well, sometimes God is going to use, uh, elements of nature or elements of our existence that are going to be very uh, impressive to us or very uh, interesting uh, to really make his own PowerPoints, you might say. It's mm. kind of like, have you ever been in a church service and you're listening to a sermon and uh, he makes this really strong point and right at that moment, uh, you know, maybe there's a thunderstorm outside. Right at that moment, you hear this huge thunderclap, you right. know? yeah. And uh, it's like, huh, <laughs> interesting, interesting time for that to happen. But uh, no. Um, and, and, you know, one thing about the splitting of the animals and like I said, our, our typical 
our typical rule for this podcast is we're going to go strictly by the text. We're not going to quote from commentaries. We're not going to be quoting from fellows that we read maybe on a normal basis. And, you know, that's fine and that's good, but we want to put our focus completely on the text to help you, the listener, and encourage ourselves to remember that that's really all you need. You don't have to have someone else to interpret the text for you. And so what we're doing basically is, is, is pulling from the text, uh, on the basis of our study and our time with the text. But, you know, one of the commentaries I looked at here, cause I've never really understood this. Why is God asking him to do these things? And it, it seems like, I mean, it, it, you don't see in the text that God tells him to split him in two. Uh, you know, the, the, the commentaries I've looked at have typically said that this must have been some sort of culturally relevant process or ritual at the time that would have been some way of proving, uh, that what the person who passes through these split animals, uh, you know, basically it's a way of swearing that, that he, they would do what they're promising. But you got a little Cheshire grin there, Bryant. Tell me what you think. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, usually a commentary will say it's some kind of cultural thing when they're confused and don't have an answer. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but, well, you know, the, the one I was reading, he did have multiple quotes from different uh, texts going back to like 2000 BC mm-hmm. that hinted at the possibility sure. that they would split these animals in two and walk between them. And again, I don't, I don't know, uh, but, but I, I think, I think you've got it right. That like, there's nothing there <laughs> that we can say absolutely is going, but, but generally can we not say that this, whatever this is, this is something that God is telling him to do or getting together to show him because, you know, right before in verse, in verse eight, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How can I know these things? And, right. you know, we'll talk a little bit more, more about that next section, but do you have anything else there? Yeah. Uh, there's just so much to say about this. You know, I think apocalyptic language is always challenging. Um, Zechariah is a challenging book. Ezekiel, where it gets very apocalyptic, is a challenging book. Revelation, obviously, that that can be a very challenging book. Well, it's because the language is a lot like this, you know. And when you when you see images that you know represent something greater than themselves, but there's no explanation in the text, now that's when you really get a struggle, <laughs> and that can be that can be really difficult. But I think there are a lot of principles in the text that just like any apocalyptic language, it's like, it's almost like when you kind of work out the nature of what's happening. So for instance, revelation, uh, let me, let me turn there, uh, really quickly. There's, there's a scene in revelation where God is sending judgments on the earth in chapter six, leading into chapter seven. And, um, in the end of chapter six, the sky recedes, the kings of the earth are terrified, everybody's fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, and then in chapter seven, the servants of the Lord are marked on their foreheads, you know, visibly. Um, and there, there's a lot of contrast like that in Revelation, where it's almost like the the 
image teaches you a lesson when you kind of think about the images, the contrast, and some principles involved in that. So uh, with that particular section, I would, I would say that it seems like one of the points that comes from the image and the event and the drama is demonstrating that everything that seems stable, everything that seems immovable is shaken and moved so that the things that cannot be shaken become more apparent. So the, for instance, the servants of the God of the servants of God are marked on their forehead. So it becomes apparent. God is unshakable and those of God are unshakable. And you kind of, again, you work out the scene. What should, what should that cause those who aren't marked to understand? And anyway, I think sometimes there's things to learn when you work out the scene is what I'm saying. So I think there are things that if we think about the nature of this scene, that it might not, that the, the lesson might not end up being, well, what is, you know, the bird represent? What does the three-year-old heifer represent? We may not work that out, but there may be other things we work out just from walking through the scene. Um, and I think yeah. that's consistent with working out apocalyptic language in general. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a little bit farther into that in the next section too, because we want to link this up into yeah. other sections of the Bible. And uh, we got to remember, this is so early on um, in the span of, of the scriptures and, and, and over the scope of it. And, uh, but before we, before we leave the initial observations, um, you know, uh, one, one more thing, God sends an angel to speak to Hagar, which I think is just great because what's Hagar? Hagar, I mean, you really could look at her. I mean, Sarah, Sarai seems to be treating her like a second class citizen uh, or worse and just deals very harshly with her. Um, and, you know, ultimately she became despised and there's, there's nothing in the text to suggest that Hagar is necessarily uh, mean to Sarah, at least not initially. Uh, we are going to see some problems with that down the road, but that's a whole other deal. But um, you know, God, God takes the time to to communicate with Hagar and encourage her to go back, and encourages her in terms of her own promise and the promises that that Ishmael uh, is going to receive down the road. greater biblical context gives God the ability to be very precise with incredibly profound concepts like Genesis 15 verse 6. I mean, that's just one verse narrative goes on. And that's a lot like back in Genesis 14 with Abraham and Melchizedek meeting, you've got this little, little short thing that it's like, it's there and that's enough because really what all that means comes later. And God knows that And Genesis 15 verse 6. Um, and, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that as we go on. But, 
I just think it, it's interesting that you've got that verse, you've got these animals that we've already talked about being sacrificed in a way where clearly that's something bigger than itself. And then Hagar and Ishmael, uh, I think it's Galatians chapter 4 that relates Hagar and Ishmael to the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. So it's like there's all of these grand concepts that through just the progression of events is so perfectly aligning with the greater context of God's plan as it just moves forward. It's just, it's extraordinary, you know, just, just how these people just doing things could be so important in every way. I, I just think it's so extraordinary. Yeah. I think, I think really in, in responding to that, I, I think, uh, again, you've got the beginning uh, you know, the start of big things here and it will take a long time for these things to unfold. And it's almost like, you know, again, linking up the idea of Hebrews 11 to this, that Ab- Abraham, he looked for a country that was not made with hands. Mm-hmm. He looked for something greater, something beyond. Well, why is that? Well, God, God is constantly encouraging him to do that. He's, he's telling him, you know, think about these things that are going to happen way long after you're gone and and this is what's going to happen with this and that and you know how awesome is that um you know in itself abram had this level of faith in god to appreciate the fact that you know hey this is going to happen but but let me let me say this too as we as we think about chapter 15 i really draw a lot of parallels and we mentioned that this before recording i draw a lot of parallels here between uh, this and the time that Elijah was on the run from Jezebel, uh, because what, you know, Elijah, certainly Abram is not as down and and sorry as Elijah was. Elijah's like, no, this is enough. You can just let me die now. But Abram, think about what's just happened. He's come out of this victory. Uh, God told him to deny any kind of reward from this, Right. And, you know, uh, I've raised my hand to the Lord, chapter chapter 14, verse 22. Abram says, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. And and so he didn't get a thing out of that except being able to rescue his nephew Lot. And he expended, actually, it seems, a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of resources in doing that. And so I get the sense that the Lord is coming to Abraham. He's coming to him in vision. He's telling him, don't be afraid. A uh, very common thing that God tells his people, don't be afraid. Uh, he refers to himself as his shield and his exceedingly great reward. I think that's wonderful where, where Abraham is being encouraged by the Lord to, Hey, think of me as your reward. Mm. You know, don't, don't worry about the material things. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, think about me. And, even then, Abram asked these questions. And here's another place, like what we see with uh, Nathaniel in John chapter 1, like uh, Thomas in later on in the Gospel of John, where asking questions, doubting, waiting for evidence, even demanding evidence, is not a thing that the Lord rebukes or just destroys us for, right? Uh, God, if he's all-powerful... He's powerful enough for us to ask even the hard questions. 
if we're honestly and sincerely asking those questions, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think there is a, a point in that, though, um, with how humble God is, that God doesn't fear being questioned by those he loves. Uh, I think there's a lot of humility in this, actually. And I, uh, I guess I'll, I'll point that out as we kind of go along more specifically. But the fact that God lets Abram question him, you know, this isn't the last time that he lets Abram approach him with a question and then respond very meekly, very approachably. You know, think about when mm-hmm. we'll get to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God allows Abram to walk with him, look over at Sodom, question him multiple times and try to reason with him about that. And it just shows that that God wants to show himself approachable to Abram. He wants to show himself comprehensible to Abram. I just think that's amazing. So that's where we get to the point where, as we have in our uh, focus verse, I guess you'd say, for this podcast, uh, for, for at least this episode, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And that's a statement that comes up later, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of debate over what exactly that means. Mm-hmm. Um, who is believing, obviously Abram believes and who's doing the accounting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's one of the serious questions. Um, obviously if we're talking about accounting in terms of spiritual righteousness and you, you, I guess you'd even say at this point, moral righteousness, um, then it would have to be God imbuing that, Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't think it's any point where Abram is just viewing God as like, this is something that's, that's good. Or actually what follows, I think would, would pose a problem for the idea that Abram is accounting it to God for righteousness because, um, he goes on in verse eight, you know, in verse eight, Abram's like, how shall I know that I'll inherit it? Hmm. Uh, when, when God refers to the land, I don't think he would ask that question if it, you know, if it, it almost seems like if, if Abram is the one accounting the righteousness, then that would just settle it and there wouldn't be any more questions. But a life of faith, it seems, uh, encourages these questions to, to, to know that God is right and to trust in him on that basis. And the result is going to be that it's going to be reckoned to us for righteousness or accounted to us for righteousness. Uh-huh. We're talking just in very basic, simple uh, aspects of this right now. Um, a lot of people have made a lot, uh, a, a lot of big deals about, uh, what's said in Romans five and Romans, uh, Romans 10 concerning this. Um, but you know, what Paul writes there is consistent with everything else that we see in scriptures. And, uh, what's your take on that, Brian? You got anything there? Well, it's, it's one of the most important verses, you know, in, in the Bible. Yeah. Um, it's referenced over and over again in the New Testament. Uh, you know, in Romans 4 is an incredibly important chapter. And I think it shows the singularity of authorship, uh, the expositions that are given on this verse in chapters like Romans 4, because in Romans 4, the author explores the heart at work in this and the quality of the faith that was here and, and the evidence that Romans 4 is correct is substantiated later when Abram offers his son Isaac. There's, there's just these claims that the new Testament authors make that you can, 
you can see that 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 was the quality of faith he had. So, for instance, Romans 4, one of the points he's making is Abram had to have the quality of faith that's consistent with the gospel. And that's extraordinary because what Abram had to truly believe was that he was dead in relation to God's ability to bring life through his promise. That he was dead, his wife is dead, and only God is capable of bringing life. And he's fully capable of doing that. And that ultimately, that's that's the crucifixion and the resurrection. We recognize in relation to God's promise, we're dead. And that he alone is the giver and the source of life. And so in this little verse is Abraham's ability to eventually understand the resurrection from God telling him to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's this quality of faith here that was the seed of that. I just think that's, that is such an incredible thing that God gives us insight to so much later when he brings, when he brings in the fact that not only was this faith related to that which comes from the gospel, this here is the quality of faith that for all time has justified everybody. Um, so for, for one verse to hold so much significance, uh, to me is mind blowing, you know, and, and for that significance to be reserved so carefully and yet for it all to be so consistent. I mean, literally you follow this through the Bible, every person of faith has saved or has had this same quality of faith as described in Romans four. And just like Romans four says, unless we have that quality of faith, we will not and cannot be saved. So it really is it the foundation of us being willing to seek God on the basis of who he is in relation to who he shows we are. This is the, the foundation. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing just the timing and the process that the book of Genesis follows to, to be able to make those points so much later in Romans. In the sense that the New Testament upholds the fact that if we have that same kind of faith, then we're Abraham's children right. and inheritors of the same thing that right. God is essentially promising here. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, and it, it's like we talked about when we were profitable for teaching and we did, uh, the episode with the other guests with, uh, with, um, <laughs> with anyway, for, it was Jeremy. With other guests. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Jeremy and Brad and Stephen. Yep, yep, yep. There you go. Uh, with Jeremy and Brad and Stephen, we talked about how, you know, it's interesting where Mel- Melchizedek is just dropped in there and then mm. pulled out. Mm. And really, the only reason that we have that, ultimately, is so that the Hebrew author can bring it up right. as a type of Christ. And so, uh, a symbol of Christ, you might even say. Yeah, and it's interesting. Not literal oh, Christ, sorry. but, you know. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's interesting that in verse six, this isn't even something that God told Abram. This is only narrative, you know? Yeah. So like it's, yeah. it's there specifically for the reader. Kind of like what we're going to see in Exodus and, and Leviticus and so on. Uh, that phrasing in verse seven, where he says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. That reminder of who God is, that's what he he wants us to know. He wants us to remember that. Uh, he always wants his people to remember that he is the Lord. And not just that he's the Lord, but but remember what he's done and the great things that he's done for us. And again, it's interesting when you think about Abram's life. Was it really that great of a blessing 
for uh-huh. him, you know, from an earthly perspective, uh-huh. uh, was it gr- really that great of a blessing for him to be brought up out of the land that he uh, possibly grew up in, uh, taken away from the land of his fathers and taken away to this other land? I mean, certainly we can understand from a spiritual perspective and, and the greater picture, of course, of the Bible, absolutely it was worth it for him to leave. But it's not really like when he says this to the Israelites, because when he says it to the Israelites later on, he's saying, I brought you up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I, I rescued you from, from harsh slavery and, you know, and lifted you up out of those things. <clears throat> but, but now Abram has been brought, Abram's been called into a nomadic existence. He's living in basically a dirty kind of hill country at this point. Remember Lot chose the best land and Abram is basically dealing with the lesser land. And he certainly seems to be doing okay despite that, but it, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a comfortable existence. Uh, but yet he, he appreciates it, but he says, you know, Hey, how, how am I going to inherit it? And one of the things I wanted to mention, uh, in terms of the, the animals that God calls upon him to bring, are these not all animals that are associated with the um, burnt offerings and the sin offerings that uh, that God calls upon the Israelites to undertake in Leviticus? Um, there's got to be some sort of connection there, I would say. Yeah, that is really interesting. Uh, I, Certainly, Moses' audience, immediate audience, the Israelites, would have been able to make that connection. Mm. Um, you know, I think, too, about just the basic thought that the vultures came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. The fact that God, you know, Abram was going to make sure that this is not, you know, my, whatever God wants me to do, I'm not going to let this be interfered with. Mm. I'm not, I'm going to keep away uh, these other forces, you might say that's, you know, maybe we're reaching a little bit there, but, uh, you know, God sets up Abram almost as a prophet, but he's not a prophet that really goes out and says all these things. He's just being told these things and he remembers these things and think about the, the grace in verse 16 too. Uh, the fourth generation that shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The idea that here's a people that, remember, we saw uh, earlier on in the chapter, you know, these people starting to populate and things like that. We know they're going to be a problem for the Israelites later on. But, you know, God is allowing this specific people, the Amorites, time, hopefully, maybe to repent, maybe to turn things around. Um, he's not, you know, this is why I'm not doing this right now for the sake of these people. Hmm. And this should have been, uh, I would really link this into the idea that Abram sees later on when he's going to be called Abraham after chapter 17, um, that, uh, that Abram beseeches God to spare people in Sodom, you know, spare Sodom from destruction. How can we work that out? Obviously, you're talking about these Amorite people, and you know, and and you're sparing them at least for now. Um, so anyway, uh, and we see some miraculous things happening: a smoking oven and a burning torch passing between those pieces. 
whatever all of that means, verse 18 stands true. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, um, and he makes that covenant about the land. Now, remember, we've got three basic promises that Abram is to receive. The land promise, which is the land of Canaan, the nation promise, which is the nation of Israel, and the seed promise, which we've already discussed in this podcast, as being fulfilled in the form in terms of Jesus. Jesus is the seed that would bless all nations. But here God is making it very clear to him. Again, I would bring up an example like Gideon. If uh you know, if you were to take one of the human made gods from like the Greek or Roman pantheon and put that God in the story of Gideon, that God probably would destroy Gideon after the first or second <laughs> attempt at trying to make sure that what he said was true. Um, God, you know, with Gideon, I think it's two or three times, if I remember correctly, that Gideon is saying, hey, if you're really God, you know, let's just make sure. And God, he stands up to that. I mean, he 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 follows through with that. Uh, again, if you're powerful enough, you don't have to worry about those things. You don't have to worry about uh, someone getting in the way of, of, uh, of what you're doing. You don't have to worry about people asking questions. I think that's generally true. Um, you know, if, I, if I'm not trying to hide anything or if I feel like I'm doing things in the right way, uh, I won't feel attacked when people are asking me questions about what I'm doing. Um, but anyway, uh, just a great example uh, by the Lord in that. Is this the first time that God told Abram, I am the Lord? It's very possible. I don't know that, I don't know that we've seen that so far. Yeah. Cause that, that would be interesting because this is talking about Egypt and that's what he says to Egypt. Well, not to Egypt, to Israel, uh, and to, to Pharaoh, you know, I am the Lord. That's, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm scanning back to chapter 12 and I, I don't, I don't really see that. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very interesting. You know, I, I think there are a lot of interesting things about this. Um, you know, so kind of like on God's part, it shows, you know, cause God, what he could have said is, well, I am the Lord. You can trust me. You know, like, here's, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, like, here's how it is, you know, but yeah. it shows God really does want Abram to understand and not just a little bit, like he wants him to be impacted by this promise. He wants this to be something that is like sealed in his mind. Like when he goes to sleep, he can dream about it. It's very emotional, mm-hmm. you know? So when the mm-hmm. sun goes down, a great terror fell upon him, you know? So it's, it's just, it's so visceral and engaged mm-hmm. And I think all of that is, is God is trying to, as much as he can, make this promise as real to Abram as he possibly can. And I think it shows how much love God has for Abram. And it shows what God is really doing with what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that God wants it to be reality. He wants it to be as real to us as it is to him. He wants us to be able to, to see it in a sense. Um, and I just, I think it just shows again, like Abram, God was trying to cultivate such a substantial, strong faith in Abram, you know, just really amazing. I think it does go back to verse one 
you know, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Um, I mentioned the parallel to Elijah. Uh, remember Elijah is in the mountains and God sends these great rocks to come down from the mountains and a great wind and uh, a great fire from the sky, which uh, would probably be lightning. Um, in, in all those things, it said, but God was not in that. You know, that that wasn't God. That nature, that that, that natural force is not God. Right. right. But after those things, this still small voice comes. Right, right. And God begins to tell him what he needs to do. And, you know, again, I, I draw these parallels here because I think this whole thing is this sense that that God is encouraging Abram to say, you know, don't don't get wrapped up in material things. Um, don't worry about when this promise is going to be. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, this is not going to be fulfilled in your lifetime. Right. It's almost like he's just laying it plain. He's being honest with him. He's not leading him along in, in some deceit. Um, you know, you're going to die in a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they're going to come back to this place. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have it in your lifetime, it's going to be, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we need that so much. Um, right. We need that. We need that focus. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the application section. Yeah. And I think there's, there's some interesting things I think that can be worked out about this just from the nature of the events. Like for instance, Abram was responsible for the death of the part of this covenantal sign. Like he had to get the animals and cut them. So Everything he did was related to death. But then God passes through in the form of the burning torch. And maybe it's a bit of a stretch, maybe not, to say that God passing through in the form of that torch is life passing through death. Life even passing through the midst of death. And that life even touches that death. But the death doesn't consume the life. The life is what touches and burns the death. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of parallels you can make even to the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus having life in him passed through death in order to gain victory over death and to bring people into life. Um, so that might be a parallel. Um, and I think it's interesting in verse 12 through 16, God says one part of it, and that part seems to be related to death as well, because he talks about Abram dying talks about the descendants being strangers and being afflicted, talks about needing to judge the nation. Verse 16 talks about the Amorites and their iniquity not being made complete. So it's like death, death, affliction, death, death. But then after he talks about death, verse 17 and 18, uh, that's after he says that is when the torch passes through. After the torch passes through, he speaks about the sealing of the promise. So, First, he talked about all the different things about death. But then at the very end, after the torch passes through, he says, to your descendants, I give the land. There it is. This is going to end up with life being fulfilled. So I think, again, just the apocalyptic language, you, you work out the scene and you think through the visuals. And there's some principles and points that become apparent as you work and walk through the scene. Going along with the imagery in terms of the Messiah, you know, Matthew 10, Jesus is saying, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Mm. 
and he's come to separate father from from mother and you know brother from sister etc cetera, etc cetera. the idea that the truth is going to uh of course divide people mm. cause friction cause problems um but at the at the end of the day uh you know uh, uh, we, we could see that there are a lot of similarities here that he's saying hey you set you know separate these out mm. mm-hmm. how did abram know to do that <laughs> um uh, uh you know there, we don't really know that per se but Jesus, of course, is the one that is the start of that separation. He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the 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 one that uh, that passes through that that cuts to the bone and the marrow of of the issue. And uh, so, a lot of interesting things uh, to think about there. Yeah, I guess one um, last thing. Yeah, if God would not have had that torch passed through would abraham's part mattered you know with the cutting of the animals the gathering of the animals if god would not have passed through with the torch would the animals being cut and all of that meant anything or had any substance you know and, mm. and i think not yeah. you know it, it required god sealing and finalizing it for it to have any kind of meaning to it at all um i think there's some lessons in that too but i guess i, I might just leave that for thinking about See if the ritualistic stuff is what's going on here. Um, what what it would mean is that the person going through those split animals would be the one that's saying, "I'm putting myself on the line to show you that I'm going to follow through with my word." And so, in this case, God, you know, if that's if that's what's going on, this is God saying to him, "Yes, this is exactly what I'm going to do for you." Right. And have no doubt about it. Yeah. Oh so. man. That. Okay. So you got me too excited with what you were just saying. I think. I think one thing that can be worked out from that. On that note, think about the Levites, the Levitical system, right? Well, Hebrews chapter seven later makes the point that the only reason why the Levitical system mattered is because Jesus ultimately fulfills the role of a priest through Melchizedek. Levi paid a tithe through Melchizedek, so it's like they're all connected together. But hmm. the works of the Levites doesn't matter on its own. You know, like Hebrews 10, for instance, says the blood of right. animals could never take away sins. They never could. Well, yeah. well, then why does it matter? Well, because God sealed it later because God completed it in Christ. And because Christ came and sealed it with his blood, now these acts of death mm. can have mm-hmm. life within them intrinsically. I just, just, it's so incredible. There's a real meaning there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's so incredible. And, and, and it, again, it's God making it clear to us that he can do what he says he can do. Yes. And it's, it's just like this because the Levites, they were acting out a scene in those sacrifices, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But of course, when the scene became greater than what they're pointing to. Right. Right. And of course, I mean, it makes me think about the time period between the time that Jesus ascended and the destruction of Jerusalem, they carried on with those things mm. all through that time, mm. but it was pointless. Right. And, and the only, the only, the only way that the early Christians interacted with them was when they went to the synagogues to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very, very good thoughts, but it's interesting that, that just as it almost seems like just as soon as God has made this clear to Abram, 
confirm these promises to him that uh, Sarai seems to have an idea that uh, gets in the way of things. Um, I don't know what what do you think about that, Brian? Why do you why do you think Sarai is is working so hard to bring this about? Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I think what she says in verse two is true. Uh, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. I mean, that's right. <laughs> because he made the promise, right? So why not do it now? I mean, clearly he's, yeah. that's, that's correct. You know, and um, I do think it's interesting that uh, in Galatians 4, Ishmael is related to Israel, like the, the physical nation of Israel. And um, there was of necessity a physical nation, but the physical nation of Israel was not the true child of promise. The physical nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9 was like Pharaoh, in a sense, risen up for wrath and not risen up to receive ultimately what was for the promised children of faith. Um, So I do think it's interesting that before the promised child comes, you get the slave child. And it's the same with the Old Testament story. Before Jesus comes... You get the slave child, in a sense, the nation, the physical nation of Israel. Um, and that, that nation still becomes a great nation, still gets scattered everywhere. But it's still yeah. not the nation to truly receive the promises of Christ. And there's, of course, in Galatians 4, the point is that there's this conflict between the two, right, that mm-hmm. we later see between Ishmael and Isaac. Um, so again, I just keep saying this over and over again, but just so many interesting things that have such a larger web of connection you know and, and you can tell like again verse two the lord has restrained me so like god is purposely doing these things and he's just watching and letting it play out you know hmm. it, it is interesting too because there's nothing in what god has told him that has told abram that this is not the way to go per mm, se mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in fact in what he says to him in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, and uh, what is it, verse 4? He who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Mm. And you can think in terms of Abram, this is not, I don't think this is an Adam and Eve situation where Eve comes up with this idea and Adam's like, meh, sure, let's do it. Um, uh, not that Adam was like that, but still. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 you know, Abram heeds the the voice of Sarai and you know certainly we can see that her going beyond God's pattern uh, created problems down the road Uh, but I can I think we need to see immediately at least for them this is not necessarily a clear-cut right and wrong but at the time it seems like they're dealing with things maybe the best they can um I don't really know. <laughs> this is one of those places in, in Genesis sometimes where you start to feel a little bit confused. <laughs> you start to feel like, well, wait a minute. But but the general thing here, it, it links up with the whole of what's going on. Um, and it tells us, though, that, that Sarah certainly, she um, again, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And again, it's like, well, Sarah, you wanted this. This was your plan. But yet now when this is this is here, you know, <clears throat> and there that is a common theme that you see, by the way, uh, 
in the Bible, you see women who are barren being despised by those who, uh, who are not barren. Uh, I'm thinking of Hannah and Penina in first Samuel chapter one, where Hannah, she, she's barren. She can't have a child. And yet Penina, uh, the other wife of, of the husband, um, actually makes fun of her and really treats her very harshly and very, very mean toward her. But again, I, I don't see any necessarily resistance from Hagar here towards Sarah, but obviously something is just not, not going well here. But Sarai, she still has this respect for Abram because I see that in verse five, where she says, the Lord judge between you and me. Um, I guess I guess I'm linking that up with what's said, you know, later on about Sarah being one who called Abraham Lord. Mm. The the sense of that she understood some aspect of headship or understood what headship was, um, what headship is ultimately. So speaking of that, what if all of this is meant to humble everybody involved? Because. Uh, Hagar is given a great promise of grace, which encourages her to humble herself. And she sees that she's unfavored by Sarai and Abram let her flee. Um, but then God favors her exceedingly, you know, like gives her these magnificent promises related to Ishmael. So it encourages her to go back and submit to Sarai. Well, how do you, how is that going to impact Sarai that, Hagar, who she knows she has been mistreating, comes back and is willfully submitting to her authority again. Uh, I think that would cause a lot of introspection, a lot of um, conviction. Um, so I think I think that's interesting. It's like this this worked out to seemingly um, humble everybody. And of course, how did that happen? Well, God initiated. You know, God is the source of that humility. And that could not have happened without the graciousness of God's faithful promises. Hmm. Uh, I think that idea that, that, you know, that God is telling her to go back into a situation where you're being despised Mm -hmm. and you're being hated. That is a very constant theme in the Bible. Yes. Where, you know, this is, this is not going to be something that's going to work out well. But you go and do it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a that's a powerful place to be too. Yes. And um, we all face situations like that uh, from time to time, and uh, we'll 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 deal with that more a little bit uh, in the next section. But I love the I love the fact that God takes this time to to like you said, give her these great promises, Ishmael. You know, is going to be born because the Lord has heard your affliction. God's not a deaf God. He's not. He's not blind mm. to the struggles that we have. Um, he's not ignorant of what we're dealing with. And so, it's the sense where we we need to be mindful of that. Mm. He didn't ask Hagar where where she came from and where she was going because he didn't know. Mm. Mm. He wanted her to think about it. Mm. He wanted her to think about you know. What are you doing? Well, mm. return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Mm. In the New Testament, we learn as Christians, we're supposed to be submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of God. 
And so if we do that, uh, of course, that's a that's a great risk because um, we're risking our own hurt. We're risking our own uh, emotions, I guess you'd say. We're risking the fact that, you know, sometimes our brethren can hurt us, but we need to be mindful that that doing this is going to be going to be good for us. I love the fact that, you know, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. Mm. Because, again, that kind of goes along with this whole thought, Mm. right? That Mm. he saw her problem and Mm. he saw what she was going through and he he sees us as well. Yeah, imagine she would kind of take that with her back in Abram's household. You know, as soon as she gets Mm. mistreated, I'm sure she could have confidence. You know, no, no, I know God sees you know, and confidence mm-hmm. to pray to God. And it's really, really interesting how she through that could learn such incredible things about God that, like you were saying, become these grand themes of faith through scripture, you know, that he mm-hmm. just helps Hagar to know so, so easily, seemingly just amazing. So as we come to the end of our episode, uh, we want to make some basic applications from some of the things we've talked about uh, in the episode. Uh, the most obvious thing, I think, when we look at what's going on here with Abram and with God, we need to be centering our focus on him. Um, a lot of people, when they face this life, and you know, one of the biggest false doctrines out there is what I would call the health and wealth wealth gospel, uh, which is not a gospel is the idea that, you know, if you, if you're faithful to God, then he's going to, he's going to make you rich. He's going to make you super wealthy, whatever you give in your tithes, by the way, tithes aren't in the new Testament. Look that up, do some reading on it. Um, but the thought is if you give X amount, God's going to give X amount, much more, uh, that's that's not in scriptures. And in fact, what, what God encourages us to do is exactly what he's encouraging Abraham to do. He knows that he's his shield. His exceedingly and great reward is the Lord our shield. Do we look at him in that way? Uh, or do we feel like, you know, there's no protection for us and we just have to bear things per se? You got anything? Uh, in general or with that? Just on that. Amen. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, what, 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 what do you see here in terms of application, Brent? Uh, I guess the first thing I'll point out is that this is going to be a strange application, I guess, but just how incredible God's word is. Um, and I'm, I'm probably, going to say this in a way that, you know, um, I'm going to try to say this in a way that's understandable uh, to get this thought out. But just again, with the animals and the torch burning and the promises, you know, and how all encompassing that was to Abram to really impact him and help him to know what God was saying in a very personal, intimate way. 
that is the Bible. God in this book has put together something that is based on his knowledge in every intimate way of what kind of people we are intellectually, psychologically, emotionally. This book, if we really will have the faith Abram had in Genesis 15 verse 6, if we will just search the pages of this book, God is able to pull from us every part of our being. He engages our mind doctrinally, thinking about things he's, he's said that are challenging emotionally by connecting us to the people and the events and the tragedies and the joy, the struggling, the suffering, that the, this experience we get in our faith, it, it pulls into every part of the essence of what makes, what makes us who we are. And I think that shows how much God knows us. And there's no God like the Lord Jehovah God. God knows who we are, and his word is deeply and profoundly engaging. And I, I hope that's an understandable point, but I think what God did with Abram is what he continues to do, not so much in some literal vision, but just through the, the, the power of this book and, and what's in these pages and, and the capability that God has put within this to, to accomplish that same purpose even more so is, is the greatest accomplishment that's ever been achieved. And it, it's just thrilling. You know, so I'd invite anybody who's listening, you know, if this podcast has inspired you, pour even more so into your Bible, because what is in this book is the very essence and character and fullness of this God who made these promises to Abram, and he's more available to us today. And I, I just think it's, it's so inspiring to read about how clearly God did that with this one man. Yeah, and in, uh, you know, you mentioned about the fact that, you know, not necessarily in terms of the visions, that it's not just about the visions that he's receiving, but even then, what Abram is receiving from God is essentially the same thing that we have. Mm. Um, yes, you could say that Abram had a benefit of directly talking to God one-on-one. -on -one. You could You could suggest that. But I would also suggest that we have a much bigger picture and a better vantage point to appreciate what God has uh, achieved and what God has, has done and the promises he's fulfilled. Uh, arguably, we have a better focus and a better vantage point than Abram had. Right, yeah. And, and, and we can glorify God for that. Yeah. Um, if, we're not, if we're not seeing anything useful, I mean, I... Uh, one of the studies uh, that I was at recently um, with some people uh, in a local rehab place, one of the guys was talking about how he uh, he spent most of his time, you know, again, this gets back to this whole thing of where's your focus. He said he spends most of his time reading from books that people have written about the Bible. And he says he... He needs that. He needs to be doing that. I, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't trying to rain on his parade. If you want to read those, go read those. That's fine. But I was sort of trying to gently say, but you really do need to be studying your Bible and really right. looking at that primarily. And he, he said, I, you know, I need those to be able to look at this old, dusty, boring book in the right way. Mm -hmm. 
And so I just, <laughs> I just kind of said, okay, you know, I mean, not much you can say to a person that's locked in like that. But, uh, you know, what he's basically saying is I need the word of man uh-huh. as well as the word of God. Uh-huh. And that's, that's not where we need to be. I mean, what if Abram had, you know, in his travels, gotten input from Pharaoh, gotten input from the king of Sodom, gotten input from these other people about, hey, what do you think about this God guy? You heard about him? Certainly Melchizedek would have. (laughs) But, uh, you know, even then, Abram's focus is singular. And and he's got that focus that Jesus talks about. If your eye is single, if your eye is focused, your whole body will be full of light. And that's where Abram is. He he's there. He's with God, right. and he's willing to do anything to be faithful to Him. And I think that that helps us to develop this too, because if our mind is uh-huh. in the right place, that faith response will be there. Right. And that is very very important that we cover that too. We're not talking about just a basic uh, mental assent where we are just saying, "Okay, I agree." Right. That's not the extent of what Abram did. That's not the extent of what Abram was uh it's much much more than that 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 it influences our life and it it helps us to do what we excuse me helps us to do what we would not have done before you know another thing that i was thinking of uh in terms of application here is in terms of what sarah does we really need to think about that because what happens when we take God's plan and the way that God has said, or even the way that God has not said, mm. and we come up with our own plan? Right. You know, like I said before, you know, someone could say, well, Sarah, I didn't know. And so there's nothing wrong with what she did. I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily wrong with what she did, but we can see down the road the the harm that it caused and the problems within the family that came about because of it. And so you have to ask this question, and I think in the religious world today, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing, for example, we're seeing congregations dwindling. We're seeing churches dwindling to the point where um, many who before have offered the fun and the frolic and the games and the food, they're they're still losing members to these other uh, philosophies. They're losing them to the world entirely because you know what? You can get the fun and the frolic anywhere. That's not the focus. And when we try to mess with God's plan and we say, well, this isn't wrong because God hasn't said it's wrong. Well, that's where we're in that same place. And even worse than that, I would say, because God has specified what he wants and what he wants the work of the church to be. And therefore, when we go beyond his plan, we have sinned against him and and we need to change. We need to repent. But that's that's some of the things that I would say about that. You got anything there? No, I think that's that's a good point, you know, because, you know, I think at the very least you could say that this caused a lot of trouble, you know, that just because just because God blessed Ishmael, you know, it still caused a lot of trouble um, from them choosing to do this this way. And I think about even again, taking kind of a bigger perspective of how God ties in the nation of Israel physically to Ishmael, the physical nation of Israel caused a lot of trouble. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they troubled God's righteous people who were within that nation constantly. Every generation, when there were righteous people, they were deeply troubled by just the constant unfaithfulness of those people. And then you look at the book of Acts. I mean, in the book of Acts, the unfaithful Jews troubled the Christians, you know, at the start of the church, much more than Gentiles did, uh, incomparably yeah. more. Um, so I, th- I think that is interesting, you know, that um, you just kind of maybe take that and, and apply that maybe narrowly to that principle you were talking about. You know, if, if I think I can improve God's plan, that's just going to cause trouble. You know, it's, it's not mm-hmm. going to be something that really gets to the fulfillment of what God's really trying to accomplish, even if it seems like it's blessed, you know, seems like Ishmael was blessed, seems like Israel was blessed, but it's still not that's still not the promise, you know? So, well, thinking about that further, could we say that an implication in terms of what God is expecting Abram to do is to watch and pray? Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just wait, wait on the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's something that we still need to be doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, that's not just necessarily waiting on an event either. It's waiting on the mm-hmm. Lord, giving him deference, giving him, you know, giving him room, you know, in our lives and, and, and allowing him to fill us in that sense that, that, you know, like Jesus said, I do nothing without the father telling me to do it. I say right. nothing except right. what the father tells me to say. Right. Um, those are, those are true. Those are true things, it really, but it is. Yeah, go no, ahead. I'm sorry. Go. No, no, no. You go ahead. You go ahead. I was, I was moving on. I was just going to say on that point, you know, verse two, when, when God restrains the fulfillment of his promise, it's because he's fulfilling it, you know, <laughs> like in chapter 16, verse two, you know, now they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the events we have. But like you were saying, we can reflect on this and know that if 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 it's if it's troubling to wait on the things we read in the Bible and, and hope in them because it's causing us grief or suffering, that's that's actually quite OK. Because you can know that God is continuing to fulfill his promise through that, not despite that. And troubles don't contradict his promise, just like the nation of Israel. In Galatians chapter 3, God uh, makes the point through the Apostle Paul that the, the law did not invalidate the promise previously made to Abraham. So troubles in our lives, or what feels like um, maybe delay sometimes, and you wish things were happening faster, we just need to settle down and get on God's time. And accounts like this really teach us that that that's it's it's okay for it to be hard. We need to have the assurance that God knows what He's doing. And I think Genesis fifteen verse six. One of the things that I think in Romans four that is reflected back on this is Abram believed God not just because of God's isolated one phrase. He believed God on the basis of who he knew God to be. A person is trustworthy. The living person of God is trustworthy. God proves him as a living being. We can trust him. Hmm. And he's not an impersonal power. Right, right. That is going to just, you know, lay out things right. here and there. I mean, he has a will and a way to work. Um, and I think, again, one of the ways we see this is in the way that he treats Hagar. He easily could have said, you know what, Hagar, <laughs> you know, who cares about you? You, 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 you were part of this, so who cares, you know, but he recognizes Hagar is, is the innocent in this really. Um, 
you know, if if anyone necessarily didn't, I mean, she's she's the mistress of her servant, you know, of Sarai, and so she's faithful in doing what she asks asks uh, her to do, and she goes because of this, you know, despising that Sarah has, and I think Sarah Sarah is obviously wrong with that, um, but this 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 application here return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand mm-hmm. what a hard lesson for us to learn mm-hmm. uh, that that even when someone is treating us harshly and treating us bad there may be situations where we need to see that we need to actually weather that storm mm-hmm. and push through that mm-hmm. for the sake of x or y i'm not saying that that that's what happens in every situation um if if you have someone in your life that is constantly violating your boundaries and even though you've made those boundaries clear and you know doesn't seem to care too much about you uh yeah maybe there are some situations where you know you don't be friends with somebody if they're going to be uh it's if it's going to be a toxic relationship that you're not you know you've tried to benefit from it but it just gets worse and worse maybe there are times where we move on uh, so I'm not generally saying this, but there may be times, and certainly when we think about working together as a local congregation, uh, there may be times where I just have to uh, bite my tongue and really work hard and strive to uh, be a friend to someone and to work through things. I, I firmly believe that most everybody in this world, as as crusty as someone might seem, you'll be able to find something of value in that person if you talk to them long enough and if you get to know them long enough. Uh, You know, uh, maybe there are some people who are all crust. I don't know. But, but, you know, overall, this sense of returning to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Most people in this world today are going to operate in a very different way than that. You know, just like you're saying how the world operates very differently from that. You know, and I, I think one one last thing I'll say on that is um, one of the most important qualities of God is he is the God who sees. You know, he's a deliverer to the afflicted. He's the carer for those who have no care. Uh, and that that equips us in unusual ways. There are many books of the Bible, like Stephen referenced earlier, that speak to that principle. But uh, one is in first Corinthians. I think there's an interesting contrast. I think first Corinthians and first Peter really speak to this point specifically. And it's the first part of first Corinthians. So in chapter three, verse 22, Paul says to the Corinthians who were seeking the world, they were trying to operate by the world standards. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. They were forgetting that fact because they were trying to operate by the world standard. Now, they were trying to put themselves in a high position because of forgetting that. But look at chapter 4 in verse 12 and 13. And this is what it looks like to remember that. And I think this is similar to God gave a magnificent promise of grace and inheritance to Hagar and equipped her to embrace the difficult reality of going back willfully to submit to Sarai. It says, and we labor, this is the apostles, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, 
being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So it's like Hagar, in a sense, was so blessed because she was able to have the same kind of principled heart that even the Apostle Paul had with thousands of years disconnecting them, with volumes of writings in our Bible separating them, that the principle of what connected them to submit and to embrace these difficult circumstances joyfully was the same. And what a graceful God that he reaches out to her mm-hmm. and communicates mm-hmm. this to her. Yeah. Yep. You Amen. know, this is the way that you should go. Amen. Um, again, God's grace is all throughout the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like to say about grace is that God didn't have to do it. Right. Um, yep. Yep. And in fact, it would have been totally fine if he hadn't done it, <laughs> but yeah, at least on, on his basis. But, but, but we see his love pouring mm, out mm, in mm. every aspect and and we can just appreciate yeah. that in so many good ways no i think that's a great point of application actually to know that we can trust god in big part because he does go above and beyond with his grace mm-hmm. you know like like you said he wasn't obligated to hagar so much as he had obligated himself covenantally to abraham you know, but then he does this for Hagar as well. And it's, it's, that is very interesting, I think, because Jesus perfects that, you know, salvation is more than we can imagine, no matter how much we can fathom, we still can't fathom just how much grace a Christian really receives. And it, it equips us to live such unusual lives. But those unusual lives, just like I think Hagar going back to Sarai and how that would affect Sarai to help her know God, we in turn to the world help the world know the greatest attributes of God's grace through our unusual behavior, entering into the world in holiness and living by the rule Mm -hmm. of that grace, like the apostles in first Corinthians four. Well, thank you so much for listening to us today. And uh, hopefully this has been useful for you. Uh, If you would, again, check out our websites, uh, northcolumbuschristians.com, gardencitycoc.org and uh, interface with us there. Also remember, we do have an email walking through the book at protonmail.com. Thankful for your time, Bryant. Oh yeah. Always so encouraging. Always so encouraging. Thank you for listening. And, and Stephen, it was a great pleasure. Study well and be lights to his glory. Next time, Lord willing, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 17. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.